You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 52 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday, the 27th of November, 2017. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Will Forster. Hello, everybody. Jesse Carnes. Hello. And Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. The occasional lady is back. The I know. occasional we have, lady. We have to talk about this name, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> See, when y'all say it with a British accent, it sounds okay. But when someone with an American accent says it, it just sounds creepy. <laughs> <laughs> My occasional lady. Yeah, occasional lady. <laughs> How uh, has everyone been over the last couple of weeks? I am enjoying being able to surf again after having a brief time out of the water. For uh, some of our <laughs> listeners who may not know or in the s- be in the slightest bit interested, I had the snip a few weeks ago. And if any of you gentlemen listeners out there are planning to do it, I would give yourself a good 10 days after the operation before surfing and the thing you want to watch out for when you're feeling better is those kind of waist high waves where you're going down the line and you know sometimes when the lip just kind of catches you in the waist area mm-hmm. yeah that's, sore. that's pretty uncomfortable yeah, well. that sounds like an innuendo for getting the snip <laughs> <laughs> Some, somehow so yeah it's nice to be back in the water oh, the other thing that happened as well was uh, we all got interviewed by cnn actually right bef- the day before the last episode yeah that was awesome how Very did you feel being in front of the camera like a natural, duh. No. <laughs> it is, um, I'm interested to see their edit because I think it is going to be a, the Jesse show. I know. They I'm spent a lot of time filming you <laughs> yeah, running in and out of the water. There was but one point where they were filming me walking down to the water and my leash was like just dragging behind me. I was like, oh man, I'm going to look like the biggest loser in the world. I was like, we got to <laughs> do this one over again. And I think they filmed me uh, waxing the board about a hundred times. I thought it was funny when you messaged me really early in the morning and you're like, they're not going to make me do that thing that they made you do last time where you sort of have to stand <laughs> at the water's edge and look meaningfully into the sunset and I was like no it'll be fine and they definitely and did they interviewed all of us and uh, Harry and I were sort of like yeah after five minutes it was like yeah that's great we'll wrap that up yeah <laughs> Jesse could you come and walk in and out of the water for the next hour and a half there was one where they were like okay we're gonna get you jumping into the water but they couldn't go in the water because they had all of their expensive qu- equipment without water housings and they were like okay jump here I was like Honestly, it's knee-deep water, and I don't think I would jump into a, a wave at this <laughs> depth of water. It's way too shallow. He's like, okay, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> oh, you should have just gone with it, and then you know it would be grabbed and appear on uh, Kook of the De- or Kook Slams. That's all I had in the back of my mind each time. I was like, please don't end up on Kook Slams. Please don't end up on Kook Slams. <laughs> it's always funny, isn't it, seeing that like behind-the-scenes look at how broadcast media is made. Do you guys see the the thing with the the floods that were in the states a couple of months ago, where there was a, there was a woman set up for her piece to camera, and she was sitting in a canoe in in the flood, sort of talking about how bad it was. Uh-huh. And in the middle of the, <laughs> the live guy, feed, yeah. a guy walks across, and it's like not even ankle deep. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I tell you what, really impressed me. I mean, well, those, those guys who came down from CNN, Rob Howell and his team were just, uh, this is the second time they've been to Nassara and they're just amazing guys. So thank you very much to CNN for coming down and, and for including us in the program. But, you know, they spent so long shooting, like you getting in out of the water and even all the interviews and everything. And it really reminded me how James, who does the movies for us every week, mm-hmm. everything that you see in those movies is done like just live, like one take. He just records it, edits it, cuts it together. 
And, you know, when you see something on CNN, they've shot it like 40 times and they've taken the best one. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it just gave me a whole renewed respect for what James done. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah. he is incredible. Uh, I think the the program is, I can't remember what the, Destination Costa Rica. I think CNN's doing a series of half hour programs and each one's on a different country. And uh, the one that they're doing on Costa Rica, they wanted to do like a bit on uh, being up in the mountains and adventure tourism and then a bit on the whole kind of yoga and wellness scene and then a bit on surfing and then a bit on sustainability. So uh, yeah, they, they came and interviewed us for all of the surfing bit. So I think that'll be out in a few months. Uh, you said that James does everything in one take. What did you mention this morning about Blue Planet and how long it takes them to film just a minute of the show? Uh, well, we're going to talk about Blue Planet a lot later on okay. the show. But yeah, they they take, for, on average, for every one minute of filming on Blue Planet, they did uh, nine days of people in the water filming. Oh that is God. amazing. Me and Maureen were watching it the other night and, you know, and, and listeners, Maureen is a water photographer at Surf Simply. You know, some, some sessions you get everyone and it's great, the waves are good and some sessions like the light's wrong and you're just in the wrong place and things kind of don't come together and it's, and it's kind of frustrating. And we were just thinking, imagine if you had to be down there for like nine days before you even saw your first surfer. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just took your shot. There, there he is. <laughs> There's someone and he's gone. <laughs> what have you been up to, Will? Uh, I have a new Omni, mm -hmm. thank you, Rupert, um, which has oh, been very fun. Board. Yeah, it's a great board. It's b I've been looking to replace the Evo for something um, that is a little bit more sort of performance-based. We have a great wave near here that is a little steeper than perhaps Guiana's. And although the Evo is great and I love it, I've just wanted something with a little bit more of a rounder outline and a little bit more rocker just to sort of mm -hmm. have a bit more of a performance style boards because I have a lot of non-performance style boards right now. A lot of fishes, a lot of mm -hmm. mid-lengths. So it was good to have a bit of a performance board. Um, and on the subject of one of my other boards, I spoke with John Pizel yesterday. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. um, I've been trying to get a bit of history on a board that I have and it's... Uh, it's based. It, it's a six-six, um, but it kind of has like every bell and whistle available. It's a swallowtail. It's a quad. Uh, it's got a beautiful like swirled cut lap um, and uh, the sort of the stepped-in rails there, um, and it's very pretty. I realise it's not necessarily a collector's board or valuable in any way, but it's just a very interesting board. I was trying to figure out when it was made and. After sending a couple emails to the company who the board was commissioned through, um, Tropical Blend, they actually closed down. So I finally got in contact with John Pizel. He actually responded to an Instagram story I made of the board and that I tagged Pizel surfboards in. And he emailed me, which I thought was great. Um, and cool. so he roughly remembers that it was a made in about 2007 and it was just a, a custom order through Tropical Blend. So it wasn't something he made for the shop or anything. It was just an order so um but yeah just a thank you john for that that's amazing <laughs> yeah you remembered what yeah. a one-off custom absolutely order from, from a decade ago. exactly yeah yeah so it was i'm stoked on that so thank you yeah that's awesome how about you jesse you've been up to much uh i've had this problem you guys now that you're because you're now free of all your commitments from your <laughs> university course so how are you filling your time not well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the search for the perfect longboard, and it's such a problem. I've never had this problem before with trying to find a board. Usually, shortboards, I'm just like, okay, I'll, I'll take that one and, and try it out and get a new one. Um, but for this longboard, I've been deciding between a uh, pocket knife Bing and a uh, black horse, black rose board. But every time I go to like each website, I'm like, nope, don't want it because of this reason, or yes, I want this one because of this certain reason. Um, and then Will will like message me and be like, check out this uh, dead kooks board. And I'm like, oh, but they're in Australia. Um, so I've been having this dilemma. 
I don't think you should write off the Bing levitator. I don't think you should let the fact don't that I surf it so much worse than you would <laughs> put you off the board. No, it's just I'm just trying to narrow it down. And there's so many amazing, beautiful boards out there. And then we have Olo Olaya that's down the street that I keep going in. And I'm like, maybe I'll get one of these boards. <laughs> So, yeah, this, the struggle is real. I can't figure out which one I want. Having a good nose rider just makes surfing so much more fun, especially down here when we quite often have, you know, knee-high waves, like not knee-high, but like, you know, knee-waist-high, kind of like perfect longboarding waves, but waves that if you're on a shortboard, they're kind of hard work, you know? Yep. And, and after, you know, watching you and Asher nose riding so much and so well over the last few years, and I went out and bought that, that levitator last year, now when it's like, one to two foot and offshore, I'm just so excited to get down in the water. Whereas before I'd be like, oh, I guess I could go in, you know? Yeah. And I feel like uh, right now I have my fish, which is really nice. And I have my high performance shortboard, but I'm just missing that longboard. Got to have a longboard. Got to have a longboard. I recently painted part of my longboard. Um, it ha I won't say the brand, but it has a couple logos on it that I, that I don't particularly like. Which the board logos? Is I'm not going to say because <laughs> I love the board um, and it's a very beautiful board apart from the logos. So I masked off a couple block lines in a really soft, uh, kind of like a soft army green to give it a little bit more of a classic look. And I'm sure it surfs better. It just definitely <laughs> is a better board now. So whether it's the half a gram of paint on there that just tipped it into that green zone, I don't know, but it's good. I think when deciding which board I'm finally going to get, it all will come down to color, really. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So pink, pink with sparkles. Pink Whoever with makes <laughs> the pink with sparkles, you're just buying that one. Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, you know what else happened to me? I was swimming under a wave with my beautiful Sony A7S, and I had my Aquatech housing. And usually it kind of like, I swim down to the bottom, and when a wave comes, I'll dig my fingers into the sand, and I'll hold onto the sand and kind of like let my fins like waggle behind me as the wave goes over and then pull myself up. And just as I pushed off the bottom, my camera was just like a dead weight sitting on the bottom of the pool. And I suddenly was like, oh, f it's totally full of water. And I lifted it up and the whole thing was completely full. Even the inside of my beautiful 55mm Carl Zeus lens was totally full of water. And as I got back, the thing that you very kindly bought me about six months ago, Harry, which is an alarm that you put inside your mm -hmm. housing that, yeah. that beeps and flashes a red light if, if it there's any kind water, of leak, yeah. was still sitting in the packet with the instructions <laughs> on my desk, not yet put in the housing. Did you work out what, what caused the leak? I still don't know. I, with those Aquatech housings, the very front part of the lens port, the lens port screws onto mm -hmm. the housing, but the front part of the lens port also unscrews from the rest of the lens port. I can never get mine open, but yeah. I've been trying to open that because I can see that the sand in the screw thread of it, but I can't physically undo it. I can't grip it tight enough. But like when you lift it out, was there, wa there must've been water leaking from somewhere. Well, the whole thing was just like dripping with water and full of water. And as soon as I got out of the ocean, I clipped the back off, emptied the water, oh, right. and turned the camera off straight away. But we're, we're ordering, I'm replacing it now with an A6500. So that'll be interesting. It's just a different camera, but it, it, that was one that we talked about a lot in the photography special with Demir. So I thought I'd give that one a go. Um, and I'm also getting an SPL housing and we need another housing for Surf Simply. So we're going to get a Salty housing as well, which is a new company from Australia that's supposed to be very good. So then we're going to have all three housings. And for anyone who's interested, we could do a little housing <laughs> review feature on one of the episodes. Uh -huh. oh, that'd be cool. I saw I was filming um, when you were coming out of the water and you handled it pretty well. I saw <laughs> you, were, you even waved goodbye. You didn't like go stomping off. You were like... Jolly old Roo, Roo walking down the beach waving and I was like, I wonder what happened? Why is he getting out? And then 
Well, as soon as I walked around the corner, I then just broke down and wept. <laughs> crying, <laughs> crying in the corner. No, there was, it was one of those things when I break stuff like that, where I'm like really devastated for a few seconds. Then I'm like, oh, I can get a new one. <laughs> Shiny things. I talked to Marie and I said, how is it in the house? She's like, oh, he's already ordered a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, do you know who got a little mention in the Financial Times recently? I uh, believe we did. Yeah, which is quite exciting. Woo-hoo. Yeah, thank you very much, Financial Times. Thank you very much. Yeah, we got sent this uh, Carrie Ann, who does all of our bookings, uh, reads the Financial Times, which slightly surprised me to discover that she reads the Financial <laughs> Times, but there we go. Is she very bad with money? Like, why, why does it surprise you? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't see her as like a, a, a Wall Street trader. She, well, mm. she's in charge of handling all the money that comes in to serve simply. So I feel reassured that she reads the Financial yeah, Times well, that's very in some true. way. Although I was surprised too. Yeah. Anyway, um, they, they did a feature. I think we mentioned it in the last episode of the podcast, the, um, that horrific wipeout that Andrew Cotton had at Nazare a couple of weeks ago. Did you put it in the show notes for the last episode? I believe I did. But just in case, I will put it into the show notes for this episode as well. He takes, it's a situation that I think you, know, you see all the time where someone takes off on a really big wave and the lip comes down behind them and pretty much lands on their head and you go, ooh, that's nasty. And then all the white water kind of explodes. And then the thing that was really weird about this is in the middle of that big explosion of white water, there's just this little tiny blob that is Andrew Cotton just getting absolutely blasted. I mean, it's got to be 20, 30 feet in the air. It's amazing. So by the, the explosion the wa- of the white water and then, you know, spinning around in it, around every access, hits the water really hard and then gets run over again by the wave. So there's, there's, there's white water just exploding bouncing up after the lips impacted about 20 feet in the air in it there's just a tiny little cornish plumber spinning round and round (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing it's yeah it's pretty brutal anyway so the article touched on that but it also touched on the fact that he is got a course running uh, on how to surf big waves if anyone's interested in learning to surf big waves yeah i thought this was really interesting so uh, him and, uh, and Andrew Cotton's an incredible person if you haven't read more about him uh, listeners uh, check him out but uh him and Andrew Blake, who has a company called Bay Fitness, they, according to this Financial Times article, were uh, running courses for, I guess, you know, like what we would call level four surfers, but exclusively based around uh, training to surf big waves. And, mm. you know, I, I think they run a lot of these courses in Portugal, and I guess they can't guarantee that the waves are going to be big, obviously. So, uh, you know, kind of like what we do, I think they're trying to teach people how you train on an ongoing basis rather yeah. than we're going to pull you in some big waves this week. Um, but yeah, I did a bit of Googling around and I couldn't find anywhere online where they were actually sort of talking about what this course involved. The guy who wrote the FT article, I think his name, and this is from memory, I think his name was James Stewart, but he had gone and done this course. Um, and when you, when you, the only thing I could find was Bay Fitness. So, you know, if you're interested in that, listeners, uh, that's probably the, the place to go to get in touch with them. But yeah, it was nice at the bottom of the article, they, they talked about, you know, if you don't want to surf big waves, but you're interested in some good surf coaching, uh, yeah, Surf Simply is the place to go. They lifted, listed a couple of other places, but kind of cited us as being uh, the technical coaching guys, which was really cool. So yeah. that was, uh, yeah, thanks. So thanks, FT. So Financial Times and CNN. Yeah. yeah. Kings of fake news. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, rolling into the news then. Just a couple of uh, couple of quick items that have happened. The WSL has released the tour schedule for 2018, which we'll talk about a little bit more detail later in the episode. Um, Punta de Lobos is the latest location in the world to be declared a world surf reserve. 
Um, so hopefully that is then the end for all the sort of campaigning that's been going on to try and protect that location and make sure that it survives. So that's really cool to hear. Asher's going to be pretty stoked about that. I'm sure Asher will be very <laughs> pleased after his recent trip there. And then the final thing, just something that you guys might want to uh, to look into, the Surf Poll Awards are coming up in a couple of weeks, and they've now opened all the categories up for voting. So if you want to have a say in who wins the Wipeout of the Year or the Best Video Documentary or whichever category you like, then get on in there and uh, and place your votes. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes, as always. Judging by the t-shirt jesse's wearing i think maybe she might want to vote for sally fitzgibbon (laughs) (laughs) yes listeners you know the adverts that you see on the webcasts where everyone's wearing the they look like soccer tops i guess and they've got the name of the surfers on the back and they're going no i'm gabrielle medina (laughs) no i'm gabrielle medina well jesse who are you today I'm Sally Fitzgibbon. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to post a picture on Instagram so you guys can see that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Getting ready for, uh, and, and yeah, Jesse's going to be talking a bit more about the uh, the women's finals that are coming up. In fact, possibly even starting today. Today. We will see. We'll see what happens. Yep. Haven't we got, we've got the, the women's on hold. We've got the triple crown on hold. That's started as well, right? Mm-hmm. And we've got the world longboard finals. All of it going on at the same time. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So a lot of our American listeners won't yet have had the chance to see the new BBC uh, nature documentary about the oceans, Blue Planet 2. So about 10 years ago, there was a series, uh, Blue Planet, which was narrated by David Attenborough, who also did the Planet Earth and Planet Earth 2, which was out a few years ago. And um, at the time, the Blue Planet was one of the first... it captures up headlines around the world because it was the first time that people had filmed, you know, like whales and sharks and, and things like that jumping out of the water at, in that super slow-mo because the technology hadn't been around that long. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, the thousand frame per second. I can't remember what it was back then. It was, I think it was like a killer whale grabbing a seal and jumping mm-hmm. out of the water. And uh, no one had really ever seen anything like it. Anyway, over the last four years, they've been back in the oceans again and, and making a whole new series. And I think that this is really spectacular because 10 years ago they couldn't have shot this because the technology didn't exist we weren't able to go that deep and capture things in so much detail and in such high definition and you know as if you've listened to i think we episode 35 was where we talked about despeciation in the oceans and uh, unfortunately by 2050 2060 and in most of our lifetimes most of the animals that we're seeing in this program simply won't be there so as the technology gets better and the cameras get better, there just aren't, there isn't going to be the sea life there to film. So while surf videos and surf tour heroes are going to come and go, this series is going to really stand out as a landmark uh, piece of cinematography for hundreds and hundreds of years because, like I say, these, these animals just aren't going to be there one day. And, and the photography is absolutely stunning. It's incredible. Um, if you can find any way of watching it, but Torren, <coughs> if you can think of any way of downloading it so you actually get to see this, I think that it's really, really important. One of the things that really hit me in the first episode, I don't know about you guys, you guys have all seen uh, the first episode, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. we're about halfway through. I think there's six or seven episodes and they've, they've had four or five of them out now. I think number five will be out by the time this podcast goes out. I've just seen the first four. Jesse and I put on episode one last night and we were like yeah we're super tired we'll just sort of fall asleep to it and then like 45 minutes in we're still like glued to it going, ah, animals ah. it's, it's <laughs> it was so intense. amazing isn't it, it is it's so like, incredible when when we first flicked on the first episode as well we were like oh yeah nature documentary just sit back and kind of have that on in the background while we have dinner 
And I like I don't think I even lifted up my fork to take a bite because I didn't <laughs> want to miss a second of what was on the screen. It was just so incredible. Um, yeah, I mean the one bit from that first episode. I don't know about you guys, but the bit that stuck with me was was the dolphins surfing which I just thought was absolutely incredible. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't know this, but apparently the, the current leading hypothesis among researchers about why dolphins surf is to practice coordination and uh, for social bonding, which is really nice. So basically they just like to surf to hang out with their mates. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. Um, what were some of your guys' favorite bits? My favorite bit was when the bottlenose dolphins in between surf sessions would go down to a specific type of fern that was on the bottom of the ocean and rub themselves along it to prevent infection because it had, um, what did it have in it? It had like antibacterial uh, yeah. properties to it, to the gel that was on the fern. And I was like, that is just so crazy cool. Uh, when you get to the deep ocean one, which I think is episode four, and it shows the turtles going to one specific coral head with a bit of like a dip and a sandy bit in the middle and they go and sit in it and then all the fish come out and they clean their shell and then the <laughs> next turtle goes up and goes and they queue up and the next turtle goes in so they're just like going into a car wash. It's like amazing. a turtle wash. <laughs> <laughs> the bit that blew me away was the, uh, in, in episode one, was the, the very low light camera that they had that was shooting the manta rays swimming through the phosphorescent uh, plankton. And that was just incredible. Um, and it, it was interesting to hear that the, the, the guys that were down there videoing it really couldn't see anything at all. They were just, it was total blackness. And it was only when they got it back onto the computers that they could suddenly see this, just these huge explosions of color that were happening as the rays swam through. It was kind of hard to believe that was real. Yeah. Yes. Like what it you was. were watching was actual footage. I, I kept seeing, that's, yeah, Maureen and I, we, we kept watching parts of it. And almost having to like slap ourselves around the face and remind ourselves that it's not CGI. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's almost like watching CGI things kind of has almost desensitized you to, to stuff. Yeah, I liked the giant, giant Trevally fish. Um, the one that in slow motion was leaping out of the water and eating birds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you believe that? Well, I was sat there like, it just blew my mind that that is just a thing that a fish does. You know, it was incredible footage. Yeah. Well, one thing that... Uh, kind of changed my perspective on eating fish was that in the first episode they talked about how they managed to get on film one of the first occasions of fish using tools did you remember that bit and he mm -hmm. gets the clam yeah. Yeah. and kind of or she gets the clam and uh, carries it back to, to kind of this coral head and she's found this little place where she can kind of crack the clam open and actually later on in one of the other I think it was in the episode four the deep blue one and there's this little family of, of fish that lived around an enemy and they need to get a bottle to put un like a plastic bottle that they get to put under the enemy so that there's something to stick the eggs on and they sort of work as a team to lift the enemy up and push the bottle underneath it and uh yeah, I mean, it's just incredible. Watching the use of tools by other animals just kind of reminds me that we're animals too. Mm -hmm. And I, before I was, <laughs> I was a vegetarian who ate fish. I can't remember which comedian described fish as the weird exception to a vegetarian diet. But, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I'm not claiming any moral high ground or anything. But ever since I watched that first episode, I've just been like, I can't eat fish. I just can't. I just no. can't do it. But maybe clams. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> when I see a clam using a tool, then I'll stop. Yeah. But until then. <laughs> clams that's and the, that's the line. Yeah. Yeah. If it can use a tool, it doesn't get eaten. <laughs> so if a sheep approaches me, I'll just give it a screwdriver. And if it doesn't know what to do. The irony is that Rue, you are not the most uh, <laughs> tool-using of individuals. Uh, Larissa so. walked out of my house the other day, just shut the front gate, and the sign that says Casa Concha just fell off the gate and onto the floor. And she was like, did you just stick that on with glue? <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, 
That's pretty much the only DIY tool I use. Super <laughs> super glue. Yeah, if you can't stick. do super glue, it doesn't go down. <laughs> um, there's a. I'd like to congratulate as well Jonathan Smith, who was the producer of the series, who. Funnily enough, I, I haven't actually spoken to him for 15 or 20 years, but Polzeth, which is the small town in England where Harry and I and Tommy, one of our other coaches, uh, spent a lot of our youth surfing. Uh, John Smith's parents owned the cafe, which used to be called the Galleon right there on the beach. And John was the head lifeguard for a long time. And hes I guess he's like two years older than me, same age as my sister. He went to university with her. And uh, when I started surfing... I was kind of, I came to surfing kind of late in life. I was a teenager and I was riding like a 6-1 shortboard because I just didn't know any better and was paddling around just making a, a total mess of the whole situation. And I remember I was surfing for like a whole summer. I didn't think I caught one unbroken wave. I was just paddling out in onshore surf and I just kind of thought that's what surfing was. I didn't really know any different. And I remember one day right at the end of the summer and, uh, and I was out there failing to catch any waves on quite a clean one to two foot day. And uh, John Smith paddled over with a longboard and I'd never been on a longboard before and he gave me a longboard. And I remember I caught my first wave, it's left, obviously. <laughs> and I remember going all the way down the line on it and just going like, oh, that's it. Right, this is what I'm going to do. And it was a, like a real life-changing moment. And I've never actually told uh, John this. But anyway, he's, he's the guy that produced the Blue Planet. And we have another Surf Simply connection with the Blue Planet as well, which is your sister, Harry. It is indeed, yeah. My sister's doing the, um, the accompanying podcast. The, the BBC's put a lot of podcasts out, but they've basically all been radio shows that they've made that they then rebroadcast as podcasts. And they're uh, playing around with making a couple of different series that are just for podcasts. And uh, yeah, my sister got, got, got one of those gigs to do the, the accompanying podcast for The Blue Planet. So they've been interviewing lots of the cameramen and producers. And I was listening to one, one episode the other day and they were talking to the guy that did all the sound design. I'm sure, though, your sister's career highlight is, of course, doing the Surf Simply podcast in- entrance. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Introduction. You may have heard her before in... Yeah. Well, that's how, the, that's how the BBC really builds the accompanying podcast to the Blue Planet 2 series. He said, presented by the girl who does the intro to the <laughs> podcast. I think, her, isn't her podcast top of the UK iTunes charts now? Yeah. Oh, so she's oh, now the leading podcaster deeply, in the family. Deeply upsetting, yeah. After, after three years of being the podcaster, my sister, I think episode one, after, after they'd put episode one up and had it up for 48 hours, they were already at the top of the charts. <laughs> that would kind of be like your sister picking up a surfboard and tomorrow beating Sally Fitzgibbon at Honolulu. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then next week Jesse turns up with a Emily Knight shirt on. <laughs> yeah. Podcast. Yeah. Dude, your sister is so epic. I would already get one of those. I love you. I love Emily. She's awesome. Uh, we talked about Hans Zimmer on the show for some reason. I can't even remember last week. The uh, the musician who does the, the soundtrack for a lot of amazing movies. But he did the soundtrack to Blue Planet as well with Radiohead. And... Uh, and it's it's a really beautiful piece of music. I've had it going round and round in my car on my uh, on my car stereo, just playing it super loud, imagining that I'm swimming with the dolphins. I should probably pay a bit more attention to the road. But um, <laughs> there was a really great quote actually from Tom York, which I just wanted to share with the listeners. And the fact that this TV series is coming out at this moment, I hope, uh, rekindles our love of the oceans and our desire to understand really our relationship to them. It's one of like, this is bigger than you. Bigger than you. Yeah, I learned a good fact about that, actually, from my sister's podcast, is that the uh, the Radiohead piece that they call, which is, is Bloom. Yeah, it's the first track off King of Limbs, which is sort of Radiohead's weird 
more like electronica landscape kind of album. So, I think it's awesome. So that track was inspired from Tom York watching the original Blue Planet 10 years ago. And so that's why they came back and revisited that song with Hans Zimmer to make the whole like soundscape for the season. Oh, I didn't know that. That's Isn't very that cool. cool. The, I, I might crowbar this song in at the end <laughs> of the show. Like I'd That won't get us into rights violations at all, will it? <laughs> get an angry email from your sister. Um, there, was, there was also, I've, I've, I don't know, I've just been watching. I, I've got, I got so into it. I've been watching a lot of uh, the interviews that David Attenborough has been doing as an accompaniment to the show. I mean, partly because I just love hearing David Attenborough's voice. It's just incredible. But um, I know a couple of the things that, that he said that really sort of, uh, that really leapt out at me. One was one interviewer asked him the difference between filming Blue Planet 1 and filming Blue Planet 2. Like, had he seen the oceans change very much? And, you know, and he said it was just the amount of plastic. Like, when they filmed Blue Planet 1 10 years ago, which is when we first arrived in Costa Rica and Surf Simply began, there was lots of places they could go and film where there just wasn't plastic. He said now with shooting Blue Planet 2, you know, although they don't show it in all of the scenes because, you know, they're trying to select pieces of, of, of cinematography that are aesthetically very appealing. And Although in episode 4, they do do a whole big bit about plastic. But, uh, yeah, he said now anywhere you went, no matter how remote, there's just bits of plastic floating around in the ocean, which is just tragic. And I have heard some scientists speculate, um, and I, I haven't done a really deep dive on this, listeners, so this isn't like a cast-iron fact, just some speculation that I've heard. But I know that plastics don't biodegrade. They just get into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. And the danger with them is that they enter the, the food system and you know they start being ingested by animals. And they can even get so small that they can get inside cells. And then they release toxins at different rates. So uh, according to how big they are, different toxins can come out. And of course, that just proliferates all the way down through the food system. But yeah, I've heard some people speculate that as you know, CO2 levels uh, go up and the climate gets warmer and the oceans become more acidified and overfished, we're going to be looking at oceans in 50 or 100 years' time that's mostly tiny, tiny bits of plastic and thousands and thousands of jellyfish, which is pretty much the only animal that will do well. That sounds like surfing is going to be really fun. Yeah. So, I don't know. You know, he, he just tries to push this message forward that, like, number one, try and use as little plastic as you can. And number two, like, put pressure on politicians at every single level to to try to put regulations in place that make it easier for businesses not to use plastic mm. and and also to you know to work together as a, as a as a planet not as look out for the best interests of any individual nation <coughs> you listening there mr trump uh <laughs> you know one thing i love about this series though is that you you could talk a lot about climate change and about pollution and, and, and all of these things and that there's a lot of groups out there that do that and i think it's fantastic um and really important but david attenborough approaches the environment with this uh, really like wonderful attitude where he's like, I just want to show people how beautiful it is so that they fall in love with it. Mm. And then they can go away and they can do work to save the environment and protect it. But it has to start with people just falling in love with the world around them. And that's what I wanted to do over the last, not me, but it's David Attenborough wanted to do over the last 30 or 40 years of his lifetime. Mm. And I just think that's just such an important thing. And it's so fantastic. You know, I, I'm more guilty than anyone of banging on about the facts and sometimes forgetting that actually people have to fall in love with an idea first. Mm -hmm. There's a, a great interview that he did. There's a, a British historian, a quite like quite a young historian that does TV shows, Dan Snow. And there's a great uh, interview that you can find as a podcast. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it was it was Dan Snow interviewing David Attenborough. 
and it was that the conversation that they ended up having was both of them basically you know we make tv shows about stuff that we are passionately interested in but but exactly that idea like you're not necessarily trying to educate people you're trying to make people fall in love with the subject so that they go away and educate themselves you know and, and want to educate themselves whether it's about human history or natural history yeah that, that that's kind of step has to come first and, and it's interesting now especially because i don't know it was funny going back before this episode and I, and I was just kind of doing a bit of a dive into you know some of the backstory behind the blue planet and I ended up because most of the interviews that David Attenborough does afterwards are all about climate change and I ended up you know going into all of, of that again and kind of revisiting it and refreshing my mind on, on some of the evidence and, and some of the things that have kind of come to light over the last six to 12 months mm-hmm. and I remember there was this one thing that really stuck out in my mind from a couple of years ago and it was there's a podcast called the infinite monkey cage you guys ever listen to that yeah yeah it's a really good kind of comedy science podcast that they that radio 4 do in the uk and uh, they did a climate change special and there was a really interesting professor of climate sciences that was on the show and he said something that i thought was interesting doro brain the british comedian who was on there said to him why is it that we as a human species really can't handle the world getting warmer i mean like why can't we just make different kinds of houses and just live mm-hmm. in different ways and live in different areas and just kind of adapt? Like, well, what is it? What's the thing? What's actually going to hit us? Uh, and he said, well, the first thing is that most of the crops that we have won't grow properly and there'll be massive water shortages. And then you'll have lots and lots of people needing to move and live in other places. And when lots of people move and suddenly arrive in a city, then you kind of get conflict and you get war. And then you get politicians being voted in in order to put up barriers and fences to keep people out. And then you have extremes of political opinion and you have more and more conflict. So the first thing we're likely to see as a society as a result of climate change is a massive swing to the right and masses of conflict. And and this was from a podcast a couple of years ago. And I just thought that was listening to it this morning when I was having my cup of tea, I just thought, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. Mm. Mm. Um, th- there was something else as well that, that I heard uh, Stephen Novella say that I thought, he's probably the person I quote the most on this show. But, yeah, <laughs> or, he, ju- or just generally. Just generally <laughs> in life. Uh, but he, he pointed out something that I think is really interesting. You know, obviously right now in the, in the US particularly, uh, there are these sort of these two sides of the climate science debate because you know p- people have weighed in and created this false balance situation um, and you can actually approach it in an interesting way and say look 11 billion dollars a year are spent on healthcare for people who have uh, poor health directly as a result of pollution so you know you don't even have to address you know co2 levels you don't have to believe in climate change at all and you certainly don't have to believe that people are causing it there's a really really good economic argument just for lowering pollution levels based on the cost in terms of healthcare and like that's it you don't you don't even need to have the discussion if someone doesn't want to go there who is the politician who is going to take the action now which will cost the economy a fair amount but which won't bring any visible profit until long after he the next election or the next one election who is that politician well he has to be a far, he or she has to be a far-sighted one for a start and and an altruistic one the ocean the largest habitat on earth A generation ago, the series The Blue Planet took us beneath the waves. 
But now, we know so much more. Take a deep breath. I believe that Blue Planet 2 will be out for the rest of the world in a couple of months and the uh, the accompanying podcast with it. But if you do have a... I, I think you might be able to watch it on uh, iTunes worldwide. But for those of you that, that haven't been able to watch it yet, when you have access to it, it is well worth a watch. You're listening to the Surf Simply Podcast. So I recently read a 2016 Surfer Magazine article featuring Matt Warshaw, who created the Encyclopedia of Surfing. Um, it's an amazing resource. We use it all the time here, um, and he just has so much information available to him. So I always seek out his articles um, whenever I can. The article said that it's been 36 years this year since a world champion won on a self-shaped board in 1982. Now, that was pretty interesting to me, and it got me thinking about how many people in the surfing industry, professional surfers, have made their own surfing surfboards and actually having thought about it it wasn't that surprising that nowadays we don't see that too often um, and I'm only talking here about the shortboard world tour um, we still see a lot within the longboard world tour surfers like Justin Quintel and Ben Skinner do regularly ride their own self-made boards so I don't know Ben Skinner shaped his own boards he's got his own brand skin dog surfboards no way mm. there you go um, so just the shortboard uh, industry, essentially. Um, but in shortboarding, Matt Warshaw says that he doesn't think that will ever happen. We won't have another Mark Richards sort of repeat that process. Um, and I definitely agree with him. In the past, making your own surfboard was a thing because there was no such thing as the shaper. If you wanted a board, you had to figure it out. And then as surfing progressed into an industry, as did a commercial market for surfboards, um, and the shaper, in inverted commas, was born. Not necessarily the progressive shaper, however, but at least a maker slash supplier of surfboards. Do you think as well it'll never happen because going back, you know, Mark Richards wasn't the first of the professionals, but but really he was like he was one of those guys that pushed for there to be a professional world tour that you could actually make money at, you know, along with guys like Rabbit, Bartholomew and Pete Townsend and, and things like that. But after that generation there was a viable career path where you could be a professional surfer. Mm -hmm. So you could specialize in that. You didn't have to find, you know, everybody before that had to find another job to support them being a surfer that would enter an occasional contest. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, later on. Warshaw said that in the 1970s, you really had a shot at making a great board, not because you're a design genius, but because shipboards were the standard. Just, <laughs> just the best quote ever. Uh, I love that. That's one thing I love about Matt Warshaw when he writes stuff like that. It's just so blunt. Mm -hmm. Um, but now, when shipboards are not the standard, at least compared to then, why bother? The problem is that hyper-technical boards suitable to the pro's needs are so accessible. Uh, in fact, they're as equally accessible to us as to John John, kinda. Uh, we can just go out and buy the Pizel 6.1 by 18.65 by 2.31 inches, uh, the bastard model pretty much off the rack. Um, so why bother trying to build a Formula One car in your garage when you can literally buy the most advanced Formula One car or surfboard in this case for relatively affordable prices. Now that's a shame in some way, having the best equipment so accessible, which I realize sounds ridiculous, but I'll make my point. I believe it's important for a surfer to understand the role of certain surfboard characteristics. Uh, we talk about it a lot on the show, how it can benefit you. It's as much about the why as it is the how. Um, so number one, the surfer can choose the right board for their level or for the right conditions, for the right wave. And two, so that they can interpret the data and give feedback on those characteristics to ultimately aid future surfboard choices. I think you can enjoy surfing a lot your whole life without ever understanding this stuff. But I think that 
and this is something that that we have all learned doing this show and through all of the coaching that we do at Surf Simply as well. Any subject that you you dive into, you always just find that there's so much more to know about it than you ever thought possible. You know, and 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 the more you find out about something, the more you enjoy it, whether it's music, cooking, or surfboards. So I, I think that. It's not that you have to understand how surfboards work in order to really enjoy the sport, but there's so much there to enjoy and to love and to have a good time with if, yeah. if you dive into it. Yeah, I kind of see it like you were saying earlier about the Blue Planet, that the, what David Attenborough wants to achieve, not necessarily to educate people, but to at least inspire them in some regard. And I think um, when you love a sport so much or enjoy it like we all do, you know, you, you, you're desperately then trying to get as much information and you kind of froth over it so much more and it, and yeah. it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. And I think that's kind of what telling or suggesting people do with this. You know, there's so many things we can take from not just how were the waves, how did our surf go, but the, all the information that surrounds the, the technical aspects, the physical aspects. Jesse's into, interested in the muscle groups and all these kind of things. You know, it's, it's so important to, to uh, find an area, in this case it's board design for me, um, and sort of explore it as much as you can. It's one of my favorite traits in any human being are people that are curious. Yeah, definitely. Um, and on that subject, I realize this is perhaps more relevant to the professionals who c- interpret that data directly with their shapers and who ride different boards every session for, for every contest. Um, and I'm not saying that they don't do that already, but it's something that I personally do with every board I buy and I'm not a professional surfer. Um, I might do it a little more casually with regard to, to feedback and interpreting the data, um, but I can't help romanticizing over the hours spent in the bay understanding that information and sort of committing mind and body to to exploring the feedback um, for the sole purpose in this context of being, say, the next world champion. It's one of the, I, I remember reading an article a while back, and it might have been Matt Biolas or it might have been somebody else, but it's someone from Lost. And they were talking about how when they take kids onto the team, one of the things they actually put the most work into is not necessarily giving them great boards, but it's teaching the kids to give them the appropriate feedback so that they can get the right boards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which I thought was really interesting. Definitely. I guess you have to really teach a surfer, you know, talking about those kids joining the team, like two things. One, they have to understand what they're feeling and what bit of the board is doing it. And then number two, you've got to give them a vocabulary to articulate like what it is that they want and what it is they don't want. Yeah. You know, I mean, one thing which is always kind of a running joke is is like how poorly surfers articulate the experience of riding waves as a general rule. And it, I mean, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. Mm. But, you know, I can imagine as a shaper when you've got your pro surfer coming and going, oh, it's, it's a bit like squiffy. I want something with a bit more vroom, you know? And, I was going to say, and or finding a shaper that can articulate yeah, you know, yeah. The, that as well. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It goes both ways. Yeah. 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 And for us, I mean, we might only buy a few new boards a year rather than, say, the 20 boards that John John or one of the pros might go through each season. So there's 20 Harry's differences. Like laughing at me for <laughs> how many boards. I, I wasn't already. actually. I was more laughing at the 20 boards because I think John John goes through about 100. Well, exactly. Something <laughs> like that. Imagine there's time you know micro macro mm. changes to each one of those 100 boards and the individual has to be able to interpret that and then like you say articulate that information back didn't mick fanning take 35 boards to hawaii that uh, year that he was they won the world title mm. i think mick normally goes through about 150 boards a year i believe Jeez. john john is apparently quite frugal on boards which is why it's less than 100 yeah <laughs> so imagine <laughs> 150 i can't even imagine that 150 boards a year just as well, we don't all surf that well. And all of them performance shortboards less than 6.6. Six. Yeah. 
Jeez. And imagine wanting to be the pro surfer who shapes your own boards and using that as a f- how much time, you know, Matt talks about that in, in the article. And I'm having a problem just picking out one board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, when Matt talks about that in the article, he says that shaping is a full-time job now and being a pro surfer is a full-time job now. So outsourcing, I guess, is the only solution, you know, in today's sort of, you know, modern yeah. performance surfboards, surfing. Um, and as we progress in our own surfing or dive into other surfboard styles from the past, et cetera, et cetera, there's potentially a lot of data we could personally exploit to improve just by having a pencil in one hand and a planer in the other, understanding these same characteristics that, that John John is able to. When I see Ryan Birch or Rob Machado riding a self-shaped board and talk so in depth about the design aspects, I always feel quite inspired to be more involved in the process myself. And I'm very proud of that side of the industry where an individual takes control of such an important part. Maybe it's just me, but the create and crusade attitude of hot rods and street racing from the 50s that still exists as a counterculture in motorsport today is seen in surfing as rebels or hipsters it's not taken as seriously so uh, in my opinion it doesn't quite get the attention that it deserves Um, and Rue as you mentioned earlier about surfers not having quite the reputation for articulating the information um, I realized Mason Ho has a interesting ability to uh, articulate what he feels under his feet (laughs) but with the closest we can get to say Richie Collins or Mark Richards uh, is perhaps Noah Dean um, or Geordie Smith who uh, like I said grew up with uh, father they both grew up with fathers as shapers Um, Geordie claims having experienced the shaping bay from a young age has given him a comprehensive understanding of the macro adjustments regularly made uh, to his boards and the effects they have. So you mentioned Noah Dean there. Were you giving him as an example of someone who is articulate or is not? Uh, Noah Dean's father is a shaper. And so Noah, that he grew up around that um, environment. And actually Noah Dean's dad uh, shapes his Hawaii boards, his guns and things like that. Um, so it's about as close as we can get now, someone who is on the pro tour as a connection, um, you know, within the industry like that. Oh, interesting. Maybe Noah Dean has a hidden intellect and, and grasp of the English language that is hitherto <laughs> unseen by, well, me actually, I guess. Perhaps, yeah. Well, we have, I have a link that's going to be in the show notes of a recent video um, and it is called Influential Contours and it's him talking with his dad about some of the shapes and, and, oh, and that cool. kind of I'll, stuff. So, I'll uh, check it out. I haven't yeah. taken him very seriously ever since his f- the WSL days. <laughs> maybe maybe um, that was a few years ago. He I'll, might uh, have grown up by yeah. now. <laughs> um, so I mentioned Richie Collins and he was the last person to win a CT contest on a self-shaped board um, and that was in Bells in 1992 and he was the only top rated surfer of the period to make his own boards. Um, perhaps the last time a contest was surfed on a self-shaped boards was Dame Reynolds um, and we talked yeah, about France. that. Yeah, we talked about that on the way to the beach and I actually didn't find that when I was doing uh, my research for this, this piece here. Um, I couldn't find a lot of information on it. And then Harrison, one of our coaches, mentioned it. And it was apparently he rode the board in response to having his board stolen before the Quick Quicksilver Pro France. Um, so it was really more of a last resort than a, than a conscious choice to ride one of his own boards. And Dane didn't win the contest on that board. So it's not quite as inspiring as Richie Collins shaping his own boards and then winning the contest at Bells. I guess another person to mention would be Kelly Slater, perhaps, who last year debuted his Slater design models um, made in the Firewire tech, which uh, he has some shares in the company. As is your Omni. That's a Slater design, it? is isn't it? Exactly, yeah. But having your name in the company doesn't necessarily mean self-shaped, as the Sci-Fi, the Omni, and the, the Banana boards are all collaborations with Daniel Thompson and Greg Weber. Um, so they're not 
it's not necessarily Kelly shaping his boards and then riding them in the contest. So it's not quite the same thing. Yeah, I feel like properly be in the category of self-shaper. You have to have been there like blowing the dust off the blank. Exactly, definitely. But in this sort of relatively revolutionary world of semi-retired, still freaks of nature pros like Rob Machado and Ryan Birch, who are reinventing themselves as shapers whilst riding their own boards in, say, the speciality events like the, the Ripkill Cup, um, is it Padang Padang? Yeah. And then the Four Seasons Maldives contest, um, which I don't know if you've seen the footage of Rob Machado riding the single fin in that contest. It's very cool. And that's one of his own self-shapes. So we can desperately hope that they may one day inspire a generation to shape a board to a world title or at least a contest win. But I don't know if it will be anytime soon. I think it would be great to see a, an event where everyone's shaping their own boards. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Even just a one-off speciality event, you know? Yeah. Yeah, like that, that twin cool. fin contest at J-Bay. It was so entertaining mm. to watch. Maybe we should have one where everyone has a bash at their own board. As you mentioned before, we, we chatted a little bit about the Women's Pro and we're actually waiting now, currently, in this podcast to see if they're going to run it today. The contest will run from November 26th all the way till December 6th, but I think with the conditions predicted for the next couple of days, that they'll actually run the contest very shortly. I think they've got two swells forecast for the waiting period, right? Yeah, they have, in the next couple of days, it's like 4.5 feet at like 17 or 18 seconds. Oh, and five stars. Sick. Yeah, it's going to be absolutely incredible. Very cool. So, uh, yeah, apologies, listeners, if I, uh, if I don't get the edit done quite quick enough. You may already know the results before, uh, before you listen to this. <laughs> no, I think that's definitely probably going to happen. I think you should make some really confident predictions about what's <laughs> going to happen in the contest. But what reminded me of, of this contest and, and what's coming up is, do you guys remember the 2015 final between Chris Moore and Sally Fitzgibbons? Yeah. That was the year that they had just really epic conditions, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And the same swell, I think it's actually even a little bit smaller than what they're predicting for the next couple of days. Um, but it was definitely one of the best heats in women's surfing of all times. So I'm really excited to see what the women have in store for us in the next couple of days. Um, it was such a good heat. Harry and I actually put together some coaching clips that we use with our level four surfers that come to the resort. It's actually more useful, I think, for most level four surfers. Uh, and just as a reminder for listeners, that's you know people who are performing vertical maneuvers and, and really looking to perform maneuvers with more speed, power and flow and, and getting in the critical part of the wave. Yeah. Um, as opposed to level three surfers who are just doing kind of horizontal maneuvers, cutbacks and floaters and whatnot. I think it's more useful for a lot of level four surfers to see uh, women surfing rather than men. Yeah. Um, it kind of is similar with a lot of sports. So I mean, tennis was something when I was younger, I was being coached. I suck at tennis. But um, <laughs> again, you, know, you watch the men and some of the stuff they're doing is so far beyond what us mere mortals can do that it, it, you, you almost kind of can't relate to it. And then you watch what the, the top women are doing. And I mean, it's, it's still an incredible level, but at least they're actually doing the same maneuvers that, you know, as level four surfers, we're trying to do on waves, you know, roundhouse cutbacks, cutbacks, snaps off the lip as opposed to sort of big layback tube rides going into a 540 aerial. Yeah, you know 360 I mean? aerials. No, they're definitely way more relatable. The The final event will determine um, the world title race between uh, Sally Fitzgibbons. Um, we have current world champ Tyler Wright, who's only 200 points behind Sally. Um, and also Courtney Conalog, Stephanie Gilmore, and Chris Moore will also have a chance to win the world title this year. So it's all coming down to this, basically this one event. If Sally Fitzgibbons gets put out, 
Um, she'll still win, but Tyler Wright can't finish fifth or better. Courtney can't get third. And um, Stephanie and Carissa can't win. So, Sally Fitzgibbons can like bomb out in round one. Yeah. And, and not even finish, so long as the other guys don't have a great contest either. But the, the other guys have to like get to like third or fourth in order to win. Yeah. I, I always imagine if you were in that position, and, and I say this with the caveat that if I was a competitive surfer, I would immediately psychologically crumble under the pressure. <laughs> but I always feel like it's probably much better to go in and just be like, I'm going to just win this heat. I'm going to win this heat. I'm going to win this heat. Yeah. Uh, even better, I'm just going to surf this wave. I'm just going to surf this wave. Um, rather than thinking, well, you know, if this surfer falls out in this round, then I need to get to here. And yeah. It would be very easy to tie yourself up in psychological nuts. It, it's interesting too because unlike last year the girls had no surf for the last contest at all and this year there's actually going to be amazing swells so mm. I think you're right like they're just going to have to go out and surf a really good heat in order to win so interesting um so Francisco Pimentel he also goes by Chico in some of his blogs um he's a fellow surf geek of like us. <laughs> mm -hmm. And also he's the founder of Fantasy Surfing Tips. Um, and he came up with a, an algorithm uh, for top picks of fantasy surfers. So before you actually, you know, make a suggestion or who you think is going to win, you can go onto his website and see based on uh, statistics who's going to win. Yeah. Well, so how, how does it work? So you, you put, I haven't seen this. So you, you, you put in like how well everyone's done mm -hmm. and he's written an algorithm telling you who's, who's most likely to win. Kind of. They ran a stat rank to place the surfers statistically regarding an aggregate sum of the average heat score and the heat winning percentage. Okay, the wait. An aggregate sum mm -hmm. of the heat score plus... Average heat score. Av okay. Plus the heat winning percentage. Yep. Okay. Yep. And they use this data from the season and past years at the specific event to help calculate who will win the contest. So it seems to me the only way they could do that is by retrospectively saying in past years this happened and then this happened and therefore if this happens then this is the most likely outcome based on historical averages. It's a little bit more technical than that. But it's, uh, yeah, at the end of the day it's statistical analysis of a sports game that can go in any way, you know. It, I, I don't see how it could possibly have any predictive power. It could only be just retrospectively... Well, you know, anomalous in terms of finding formulas. I mean, here's the thing. Sam Wackley uses stats to pick who he's going to pick on his fantasy football stuff. And he does pretty well at it. And that's, you know, that there's a huge amount of statistical analysis of football games and soccer games and all the rest of it that works okay. to a certain extent. I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong. To go back, it's a bit more complicated than what Jesse was saying. He's taken all the results from all the contests for the last couple of years. There's then on the website, you can choose how you want to weight it to a certain extent as to whether you want to put more weight on how they did at this con these surfers did at this contest last year or how they've done over the last three or four contests in this season to, to spit out. What it's really then based at is looking at the WSL Fantasy Surfer League or the Surfer Magazine Fantasy Surfer League, who are the most, who are the best picks how long has he been running the algorithm for? How long has he made this algorithm available Well, he's currently 10th in our clubhouse. Is he? I love any time people use maths, which can, can be kind of dry. And I still am never sure whether to say maths or math. I feel like torn between the two. <laughs> but yeah, it can be kind of dry. And I love it when people give it real world applications that makes it fun. 
Yeah, I think that's super cool. And I love that people just do stuff like this on the internet. Yeah. I think it's kind of cool, like, just to put your opinion and then see the statistics of how they've done in the past couple of events. And then you kind of mix, like, your opinion and then you see the statistics and maybe put your choice in. How do you... Um, how do you pick your stats? Your your surfers? How do you pick your fantasy Yeah, surfers? do you go, I, oh, she look, she's looking pretty strong right now, you know, surfing? Because <laughs> that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's Yeah, it's, and you, it's, you decide like, oh, did they do well last year? Well, yeah, they kind of did. So maybe they have like that little bit of momentum based off that. And or yeah, like... Yeah, it's that. just the same thing we do, except it's a greater source of uh, data, really. So well, it, it's with hard numbers and without yeah, emotion. Yeah, and, and you, you know, you've got the bonus of, uh, we might only see a couple heats from a contest and say, oh, yeah, they were surfing pretty good. I'm going to put them in the next one. But this is obviously showing every heat yeah. of each year, you know. So it's I think it's just the same thing as what you might do. I think it's interesting. I think in the final, we might even see different girls than, that, than they're predicting. Like Tatiana Weston-Webb's probably going to be there, and they're saying that she's not, and like a couple other surfers. But I just thought it was like a cool little website to I look think it's, at. I think that's super cool. I love that that guy's done it. I think that's amazing. I'd like, if he ever wants to come on the show and tell us how he's figured it out, that'd be cool. I, one of the best bits of business advice anyone ever gave me is make sure you make your decisions based on data rather than on how you feel about it. You'll sleep better and you'll make better decisions. And um, so I'm a big advocate of that. I personally make all my fantasy surfer picks just totally by like how I feel about it because it's, you know, it's really not that important. So I'm just like, I kind of don't like the song that this guy chose in his video. So he's not getting picked. And uh, that's pretty much, that's probably why I'm bottom of the table. I was just about to ask, what is your current <laughs> ranking final place group at Hill? <laughs> yeah, I don't uh -huh. have a leg to stand on really. I think it just adds like that little bit more, um, it, like everyone's into that, you know, fantasy football and it just makes you tune into the game like a little bit more. And I think like if it just helps you cheer on like your favorite surfer that little bit more then mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to follow. So what were the, uh, what was Francisco's suggestion since we were, we're all playing on the, the WSL stream rather than the surfer magazine one? Basically what he sent in for his fantasy surfing tips for Maui was tier A, Sally Fitzgibbons. Um, has amazing stats at the menu, is in great momentum in his first position of the WSL. He also added like a little bit of momentum, which at first I was like, momentum, how do you apply that to statistics? But based on like the last three contests, I guess he's added some sort of number. It would just be, you just take the results only from the last, you, you ignore everything from before mm -hmm. and you, you just look at the last three results. Right, and so he's added that to the equation. Um, in which, therefore, she comes out on top. Uh, for Tier B, Carissa Moore, Licky Peterson, um, and for Tier C, Malia Manuel. That's interesting that he gives any weight to the concept of momentum. Yeah. Because that's, that's something which is often sort of debunked by academics as, as, a, as, as a sort of a non-thing in sports. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's often referred to by, by pundits and commentators, but actually... It, the, the whole hot hands thing, there's been a ton of research on it. And it's actually on my list of things to cover in the podcast at some point. I keep shunting back. But yeah, if we can get him on the show, I'd love to talk to him about that. Yeah, I'm glad that Sally Fitz is tier A. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, we would, we're a Sally Fitzgibbons household, yeah. Jesse and I. Oh, I didn't know that you <laughs> yeah. were. Yeah. Oh, I'll never guess. Tyler Wright household? Oh, kind of awkward. I do Please. like Tyler Wright as well. You guys are <laughs> 
go. I'd like, I'd, I'd like to see Sally Fitz win the world title. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. I think she's worked very hard for it. I really like as well how much her surfing's improved in the last couple of years. All her turns were flat and pushed, and there was no power in her surfing at all. Mm-hmm. If you watch her surf now, she is full on-rail power surfing. Yeah. And for years and years and years, she did not do that. And I didn't enjoy the w- watching her surf. Like She had this amazing work ethic, but her surfing looked like Bambi on ice. It didn't look comfortable. Whereas now, when she goes out, it's full on-rail, aggressive power surfing. And that, uh, it's been really cool to see that change in her performance mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, Malia Manuel used to comment on... Sally Fitzgibbon surfing as that it wasn't even as technical as like some of the other girls too. Mm. So it's cool to see, like you said, her surfing changing. Um, As I alluded to earlier in the podcast, the WSL recently released the schedule for next year's world tour, which there's been a lot of rumors floating around over the last few months as to about which contests are and aren't going to be on and all sorts of things. So it was quite nice to have it all solidified and, and know what we're dealing with. Not that much has changed for this year. There were lots and lots of talks about uh, not finishing at pipe and the Hawaiian contest all being rerouted and things like that. In the end, it doesn't look significantly different to uh, how it has been over the last couple of years. We have uh, the full Australian leg with all three contests. We have the Brazilian pro in Rio. We're finishing with the pipe masters. Um, The big changes for the men is that Fiji and Trestles are both out, which is a bit of a shame. Although it does mean if you're looking to go to Tavarua, (laughs) there is now a big two week window with not many bookings. Yeah. (laughs) And really good swell. (laughs) I'm literally going to email them as soon as we stop recording. (laughs) Well, Rue, with every cloud break there is a silver lining oh very good (laughs) (laughs) quite possibly uh yeah so uh, fiji and trestles are out i'm not entirely sure the 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 real the reasons why those two contests have been dropped is not immediately clear although there were various statements about the fijian government not providing adequate support for that contest and i'm not quite sure what that was in it line with whether it was help with them bringing in lots of equipment to set up the broadcasts or 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 what but just from talking to people when i was over there last month there's there's quite a quite a bit of political sort of unrest over there at the moment and uh, the government's priorities do keep sort of flip-flopping um particularly in regards to tavarua and it was interesting i'd always thought that the the general consensus of opinion by the local community and i'm and i say that slightly hesitantly because there isn't any one group of people that all share one opinion in any place and Fiji's no different. But uh, everyone certainly on Tavarua was that I met or lived in the area was very keen that Tavarua would once again have exclusivity to the wave. And mm. uh, they are anticipating that that's going to happen again within the next year or two. Interesting. Um, I don't know exactly what it is that the government's fallen short of in terms of not supporting the contest. But I did like the statement that the WSL put out that, put out that was almost like a little bit passive aggressive like, it was <laughs> we love going there and we're really excited to return when the government supports us in the way that we think <laughs> they should yeah so that was kind of interesting anyway the replacement for those events i am excited about because whilst we've lost fiji they are now going back to karamas in bali 
and that was one of the best contests of the last few years so i'm super excited to see that back on tour and whilst trestles is out they are now going to the surf ranch to kelly slater's wave pool and i think that opens up a ton of interesting things if for no other reason than that they haven't yet agreed upon what the format for the competition will be i really want them to do barrel air turn every wave so every wave is you have to do a barrel and air and a turn and the waves out of i guess it'd be better if it's out of nine or out of 12 you know and then you can get four points for each thing or three points for each thing um everyone's obsessed with 10 i guess it's the old fingers and toes thing but anyway i think that that would be a really fun way of doing a, a doing a heat yeah, well, there's there's lots of options. It it will be interesting to see how it runs. I did see, I did hear the other day that when they were doing the test event, it was a five minute wait in between each wave. Um, so I don't know whether they're going to be able to get that time scale down at all. Well, um, we always talk you. on the show about how we should, how they should, you know, put together this hour or you know ninety minute long show that's the highlights of each event, where they're not just doing surfing and music, but they're building up the narrative and then saying, and we join this heat with five minutes to go. We're mm-hmm. going to watch it live. Geordie needs this. So-and-so needs that. Well, the other interesting side is that actually, if you look at a lot of contests, it's not that uncommon for a world tour heat for there to be six or seven waves ridden over the course of a 30 to 35 minute heat, which is about a wave every five minutes. So it's not, although scripting in, there will be a five-minute wait between waves. Sounds a bit horrible. Actually, that's not that dissimilar that's to a heat in the water. Uh, you know, uh, some heats are a bit busier, but for for each rider to just get three or four waves is not is not uncommon in any way, shape, or form. And, so, and I guess as well now, I mean, the problem they have the other one is they don't know when people are going to catch waves. And sometimes you sit there listening to Strider pontificating for twenty minutes, then they get at adverts, and then you finish the Corona ad only to realise that everyone caught a wave while you were away on break. Yeah. Exactly. So that opens up a ton of, uh, of interest. Uh, one thing that has been pointed out is that there is no high performance left on tour, but the WSL have said that they are going to address that for next year. So that'll be interesting. I don't know where they're planning on going. Can't they just do Limor the other way? Yeah, that's well, what I was so, they, so they can. Yeah. I mean, that, that wave runs in both directions. Um, How do you pronounce it? Is it Limor or Limor? Limor. Limor. Mm. I like Limor. <laughs> Limor. <laughs> Um, on the women's side of things, um, the women have also lost trestles um, and they've lost their event in Portugal, which I do not think is a bad thing in any way, shape or form. That Kashkai event was horrible. Yep, here, here. In place of that, they are now going to the Surf Ranch at Lumor along with the men and they are going to J-Bay along with the men. Yes. So cool. that is a serious trade-up. And in fact... Imagine ne- Carissa Moore doing big open face hacks at offshore six-foot J-Bay. Can't yeah. wait. Uh, not only that, they are also going to be going to Bali, to Karamas. So there is actually now... The women are competing at the same events as the men almost all the way through the season. Um, the only exception is that the men do have an event in Portugal um, where the women go to the US Open. Have the WSL made any comments about now that they've got men and women at the same locations at the same time? In the past, there's always been this issue of the men go out in the best conditions and the women go out in the worst conditions. Mm-hmm. Have, have they addressed that? They haven't. Um, and to be fair, in recent years, what they have almost invariably done is run a dual finals day. They've they've capped the wi- the, the the women's event might have run through worse swell, but they normally cap it at the semi finals, and 
alternate the men and the women's semi-finals and finals. So they, they've been doing a reasonable job at that. What do you guys think about getting rid of rounds one and four, the whole non-elimination round, and then they can have less heats run and they can run more of the men and women in the best conditions? Yeah, I mean, the, there's mm. there's tons of tweaks. I would personally like to see them drop the field, certainly in the men's contest. Let's be honest, how many of those 36 guys that go up against each other, how many of them do you care about? How yeah, many I mean, How I, many of them are you tuning in to watch? All of them, Harry. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Asher, if he was here right now, would, yeah. would stamp angrily, <laughs> swearing that he watches the beginning of round one in real time all the way through to the end of the post-show analysis. I think that's probably true. But, I mean, but. I think probably, I mean, I like to watch the quarters and the semis and the finals if I've got time. And if I don't, I like to watch the, semi, the semis and the finals. And I always feel kind of disappointed when, and this almost always happens the best waves have been earlier on in the event especially when the best waves have been like in round one or round four which were non-elimination rounds and they're surfing the finals as the swell dies Mm. which usually happens and it's not as dramatic I'd much rather that I mean I I pretty much go oh round four I'll go and do something else and come back when we're in elimination rounds again but I guess the WSL have got the stats on the views they must know that they must know who watches what yeah I guess the other interesting thing rolling forward there was an interesting nugget i guess hidden away in the wsl statement um they were asked during a a press briefing about the pay-per-view model and whether that was going to happen and the answer was that will not happen for the whole of 2018 huh interesting which kind of leaves the door open for them to still do it uh rolling forwards into 2019 or beyond so we'll see what happens there Anyway, rolling into next year, despite all the uh, all the sort of rumour mill that's been rolling around, it doesn't look like there's going to be any th- big, dramatic changes. But I am pretty excited for most of the events on both the men's and women's schedule. And that is the first time that I've been able to say that for a while. Yeah. yeah. I'm really excited to see Karamas. That's always just an epic event to watch. It's so fun. There's just always so many waves and all of the waves are good. And there's barrels and there's airs and there's turns and... Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's just a really, really fun event. I'm most excited about the Surf Ranch. I think that's going to just change surfing forever. I, I am really excited about it. I I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they do it. Yeah. Again, just going back to the point before, I think that the fact that the wave is predictable means that it would be really exciting if they had a different way of judging it. You know, that they, they, they take out how good are you at predicting what the wave's going to do because everyone is able to do that. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd I'd like to see them weight the judging differently. But, yeah. I, you know, I guess like anything, it'll take a few years of playing with different ideas before it's, they, they figure something out that optimizes it. Yeah. They could do like round four in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> round five, just everyone has to go on lilos. Yeah. Like surfing. Yeah. <laughs> it, would, it would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? To, given that the waves now are all identical. You remember that you, you mentioned earlier in the show, the, the twin fin event at J-Bay. You know, it'd be really fun to, to maybe unify the board as well mm-hmm. you know they, they have certain motor racing series where everybody has to ride the same car yeah. you know so let's put everybody on the same wave and the same board size for size you know let, let, let's let the same wetsuit <laughs> <laughs> the same wetsuit but you know see how they do let's let's do a, a twin fin a thruster uh asymmetric weird thing i don't know and then and then have everyone go out there and see oh you could have yeah. so much fun with it mm. yeah, well that's the thing there's so there's so much potential there, I hope they don't just go, let's just have a normal contest, but in a wave pool. Um, excuse me, uh, what am I listening to? You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Okay, that is nearly all that we have time for. 
As always, before we go, uh, our what to watches. My recommendation for you moving on from our uh, our chat there about the wave pool being in the world tour is uh, a video that Science Magazine put out. They did a pretty deep dive into how the wave pool works and they did a, an interview in particular with the fluid dynamicist that worked with the team to help them create the waves and make the waves look as beautiful as they do. It's a guy called Adam Fincham. The article is a really interesting read and there is just a little YouTube edit that I will put in the show notes that uh, might catch your fancy. Will, what you got for us? I have a uh, ready to read or I don't know what (laughs) alliteration (laughs) we can use for what to watch when it's something to read instead. But it's a article on the uh, Surfing World website it's the australia one about ellis erickson and dave rastovich and gary mcneil using some of george grenoff's old templates to make some edge boards and it's all about their sort of process and what they felt with them um, gary mcneil by the way made the flax seed board remember that one that raster road not too long ago um, he used instead of a laminate it was the flax seed mm-hmm. remember that one think so yeah. and so yeah it's a really cool little article and and it, it they just explaining what they felt making the board and how it rode and the sort of the information that they um interpreted underfoot very cool Rue? my ready to read is that what we're calling it <laughs> yes <laughs> so one of my favorite podcast listeners is a podcast called rationally speaking with julia galliff um and each week she does like a long form interview usually with a different author and she did one back in 2014 with a guy called aaron james who'd written a book called assholes a theory and he's a um philosophy professor and uh you know it, it was I, I really enjoyed that episode and it was kind of like a bit of a tongue-in-cheek one and it was a, it was kind of a pop psychology book but he happened to pop up in my newsfeed again recently because he's written a book called Surfing with Sartre. And he actually is a really, really good surfer. There's there's a clip of him on YouTube um, getting this barrel at Nias. And I mean, it's 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 better than any barrels that I've got on film, certainly. Yeah, anyway, so he's, he's written this book and it's about the philosophy of, of surfing. And he's someone who, having listened to him spoken with Julia Galliff on the Rationally Speaking podcast, is very um, non-wafty. And is very sort of scientifically informed and is and is aware of how easy it is to go down a, a sort of a rabbit hole of of non-specific language when you're talking about things like philosophy and surfing. So um, I'm I'm really interested to uh, hear what he has to say about the subject. I haven't read the book yet, but uh, I've just downloaded it. As regular listeners know, I'm an audio book guy, so I've downloaded it and I'm going to listen to uh, to that one. I'm I'm really excited because I th- I feel like philosophy and surfing like there is a lot of bullshit out there and I feel like this <laughs> like so much and I feel like this might be one guy who actually has, has avoided the bullshit and written something insightful and interesting and well informed so uh, yeah that's my ready to read there you go there we go Jesse what you got for us I talked about the Bing model the pocket knife mm-hmm. um, and if you guys are interested in watching a little surf clip from um, her name is Melly Celie it's a really beautiful cinematography and of her longboarding. She's a great longboarder. And the song is really cool because it says the name Jessica in it a bunch of times. <laughs> um. oh, I would have picked Rupert the Bear for my ready to read <laughs> I if I knew that was the theme. Um, so, yeah, I recommend uh, that one. It's really cool. And it's cool to see the pocket knife in good use. When Jesse was watching that video in the house and I was upstairs <laughs> and that song was playing, I didn't know that was what was happening. But in my head, I could just kept hearing someone shout, Jesse. And I was like looking out the window and thinking, who's shouting us? Like, what? what do you want? And when it says, it's that video. It's the video. It. <laughs> it's really yeah. cool. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> just tap an image of you waving back. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, very good. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to get in touch with myself for any uh, comments or feedback, you can email podcast at surfsimply.com and you can find the other guys through their social media feeds. Will, you're at? Will and the Water. Rue? Uh, I'm simply Rue Hill on Instagram and Surfing Simply on Twitter. Jessica? Carnita Jessita. See you guys on Instagram. Very good. All right. For now, ladies and gentlemen, from all of us here, goodbye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. These opportunities don't really come up very often. This has certainly been a career highlight. I think they're very similar. I think they both come from a punk attitude. They're just in very different areas of the music business. Making a series about the ocean is a really big ask. One of the hardest things is to capture the scale of it. The spectacles that happen in it are enormous. I think we've just about captured it with our images, but then when you put the collaboration between Radiohead and Hands together, that scale is in their music. It sort of seeped into my subconscious. I found myself dreaming about these creatures quite a lot. When we came to do all those weird recordings for King of Limbs, it must have been in there somewhere. Because um, it started with the uh, Collins bass line and the lyric, Open Your Mouth Wide. Open your mouth wide. I think there's an instinct of collaboration that can happen amongst musicians sometimes. It's actually quite liberating starting with, with a vocal. We have our sort of our melodic concepts of where it's supposed to go and it's kind of no commitment to the crazy drums or the bass line and you just take, you take what you want to take and you go, yeah, but what about that <laughs> bit? <laughs> but in a way, and quite often those favourite bits are hidden and we keep them very quiet, bizarrely enough. In a funny way, I was trying to be respectful and not not ruin the song if you know what I mean but if somebody hands you somebody else's work the responsibility and, and you know and just the respect that comes with that. It's, it's good to be optimistic that such amazing work is being done by the BBC and it's something to really be proud of and it's amazing that all this research is being done and you know this is a great way to publicize an important cause. I think what you can do with these images or what you can do in music and I find this time and time again you can get under their skin and maybe make them feel about things slightly differently. If this can make you love and appreciate this beautiful world, and maybe remember that we're supposed to leave it slightly better than we found it. And the fact that this TV series is coming out at this moment, I hope, uh, rekindles our love of the oceans and our desire to understand really our relationship to them. It's one of like, this is bigger than you. Bigger than you.